0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present the Diane Ratio. Welcome to the show today. I'm so glad you could join me. In these crazy times that we're living in now, everything seems to be amplified, especially our feelings and emotions. I'm feeling it every day. I'm sure you are as well. Anger, boredom, aggravation, and our grief. And we are experiencing grief in new ways. Make no mistake. I had a family friend that recently passed away unexpectedly, and his wife of over 30 years couldn't be with him when he was in the hospital. And he didn't pass away from COVID, but this was due to COVID, you know. And it was just so sad to see pictures that she was posting on Facebook of being outside the window. Um, you know, it's just things that we've never experienced before. We're grieving loss of jobs and loss of life as we knew it. So it, I was really happy. <laughs> that seems weird to talk about being happy with this subject but uh the new book that i've been spending time with was welcome i was happy to read this um it's called opening to grief finding your way from loss to peace and it was written earlier this year right before covid really hit you know so now we've been sitting with this for most of the year trying to deal with our grief in many different forms so this book was really welcome Claire B. Willis is with me today. She's a clinical social worker who has worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. And she's also a lay Buddhist chaplain who focuses on contemplative practices for end of life care. And you can visit her website at openingtogrief.com. And I'm so happy to welcome Claire to the show today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I do want to mention your co-author, I didn't mean to exclude her, Marnie Crawford Samuelson was the person that worked with you on this book. So, uh, you know, what a journey this must have been putting this book together. You know, I'm so glad that you could join me to talk about this because in our society, it seems we avoid talking about grief and end of life. And what drew you to doing this kind of work? Because I know some people that work in what they call the death care industry, Um, And hospice. And it seems like it's a certain kind of person that is able to do that. And and what drew you to to working with that kind of subject?
1: Well, it's interesting that you asked that. I've always been accused of being very intense. (laughs) And so, working with people who are living with life threatening illnesses and people who know loss and grief, want to talk about what's essential. And I find that it's really comforting to sit with and be with people during these times. I've been leading bereavement groups for many years, um, mostly for people who have lost partners to cancer. And one of the things that I hear over and over is, am I grieving right? Is this looking the way it should? How long will this take? And I found myself just answering the same question over and over and realizing I wanted to put something out that would normalize the wide range of grief experiences. So last spring, Red Wheel Wiser let us know immediately, very precipitously, that they wanted to publish our book this fall. We had finished the manuscript uh, about a year or earlier, year more earlier. And then there was an elephant in the room, which was COVID. And It's hard to remember now, but last spring it was kind of new and confusing. We didn't know how big it would be. We didn't know how dangerous it was going to be. We didn't know how long and wide the tendrils would reach. And it was needed something we needed to tackle, but it hadn't been part of the book to begin with. So we can't write a book about grief and ignore the pandemic, which actually changed everything. So one of the things about this pandemic is it's opened up grief for everyone. It's brought the word grief into the culture. We see articles in the Atlantic, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. We see the word repeated, and it's starting to give a name to our experience because all of us have lost life as we knew it, as well as many, many other losses. And The the arrival of COVID brought losses, but it also unearthed losses that people hadn't grieved. So it's really been, it's a pandemic of a virus, but it's also a pandemic of grief, too. One of the things that just is sort of interesting is David Brooks wrote an article in the New York Times shortly after the pandemic arrived, and he wanted to know how readers were doing. 5,000 readers wrote in response saying they felt helpless, hopeless, and felt they had no future plans. Widows and widowers were lonely and vulnerable. And he described what there was basically as a river of woe in our society. And I think that really describes a lot of what is happening now. That's so
0: true. Wow. A river of woe. Um, is certainly a a perfect description for what a lot of people are feeling out there. And just looking around my own little world, which seems to have gotten smaller and smaller, you know, over the past year, I mean, I'm seeing how um, someone had described it perfectly. Like we're, we're all in the same, what did they say? Something like we're all in the same boat, but, but it's different. You know, like my experience of, of this whole thing is so different from other friends. I mean, you know, I'm I'm married. I have a a person that I'm I'm spending this time with, which also adds its own challenges to that as well. And then I look at friends that are single and how they're reaching out and and they're lonely. And you know, we're trying to do Zoom calls and Zoom happy hours and things like that. So we we are all in in the same boat in that sense, but everybody is experiencing this so differently. And just Mm -hmm. like the example I shared, um, you know, at the beginning of the show about, you you know, this close family friend and, and they had been together for so long and he actually went into the hospital for something, you know, unrelated that should have been a simple procedure. And it turned out, you know, there were complications and he passed. And just, I thought, oh, you know, how horrible that she wasn't able to be with him at that moment, you know, it's just so it's so tragic. So yeah, everybody is experiencing this in in such different ways. And just it's everything seems, you know, so amplified. And in the work that you do, uh, everybody is so profoundly different in how they experience grief. I mean,
1: are you seeing different ways that it's being expressed in the people that you work with? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because most people think of grief as sorrow, but actually the word grief, I've actually read it as being called a multitasking word actually holds a lot of feelings. It holds anger. It holds regret, anxiety, fear. It holds gratitude and relief, depression, loneliness. You know, a lot of people, instead of going to the vulnerability of grief, go to the feeling of anger because anger has agency. You're not left with a sense of powerlessness. You feel like you have something you can do with grief. You can be left feeling incredibly vulnerable and powerlessness. And it's a harder feeling for many people to feel. Cognitively, um, in our minds, it may express itself as forgetfulness. We have trouble focusing or concentrating. A lot of people report after losing a partner or a spouse that they can't read. There's a sense of feeling scattered and just no capacity to concentrate. And then physically, uh, people often feel exhausted. They have trouble sleeping. Their appetites change a lot. People tend to eat too much or not enough. And comfort junk foods tend to be very popular. And so there's a sense of lethargy and inertia often that expresses itself physically. And in situations where there's been more of a traumatic loss, often it throws people's faith into crisis. Um, It's somehow there's something unfair that's happened and their whole assumptive world becomes shattered and, and misunderstood. There's just it can throw them toward faith or it can shatter their faith.
0: It's so interesting when you were describing that because I never thought of grief in that way, but you're right. It is so multifaceted in trying to describe, you know, a quote, feeling or emotion, you know, where we can recognize anger immediately or sadness immediately. And, and grief has just all of these twists and turns and, you know, is, is very difficult to pin down. So that that's interesting in the ways that people express it. I think most book, people
1: just think of it as sadness,
0: right? Right. You know, that's what
1: I. Yeah,
0: th- that's what I was thinking. You know, because when I think of it, you know, you think of you know people bawling and just you know sadness yeah. and and crying and that kind of thing. But then everything else you described is is such a, a different facet of that experience. Yeah, yeah. And as I was reading the book, I mean, this is such a great companion. Uh, for people, and is very experiential, which I really liked, you know, that you have these exercises and, and things and kind of tools for for people to work with, which is so great. And one of the things that you said in the book, I thought was so interesting is to meet grief as a companion. And what did you mean by that?
1: Well, it's um, one of the things that was really striking is that so many of the people who endorsed the book, called it a companion and Marty and I were really happy about that um, because we're not trying in the book to tell you how to how to do anything or how to grieve but what we try and do is to offer a voice to be alongside you telling you about things that other people have experienced that have been comforting and hoping that some of those things will make people who are reading the book feel a little less alone the The way we get through terrible things is by getting through them together. So part of our purpose in this book was finding a voice that would help people feel they had a friend at their side. The the thing of it is, if there's a phrase, what we resist will persist. And when we resist grief, it creates stress in us. And then it comes out sideways. It can come out in indirect ways. Um, overworking, overexercising, anger, just having a lot of anxiety. So uh, helping people hold their heart open during a time like this um, to sort of become more compassionate and more connected to themselves felt important. And it's a way people can companion themselves as well. So there's a saying, a broken open heart is a whole heart. (laughs) And I love that phrase. I love that. And that has to do with companioning and being open to your grief. There's a great poem, Diane, by um, uh, a Sufi poet named Rumi. It's called The Guest House. And he refers to the guest house as each of the variety of feelings that can come into your life in the course of a day. And at the end, he says, invite them all in because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And I love that idea of just welcoming whatever comes, companioning whatever comes.
0: Right. And being able to sit with that and, and be with it when for a lot of people, both the person in grief and those around them, probably the initial feeling a reaction is to stay away I mean I know nice. some people that are so uncomfortable mm-hmm. with dealing with someone who is is in grief and we don't know what to do so you know unfortunately we end up treating that person as radioactive in a sense yeah. you know that their grief will somehow rub off on on us when you know really we should be you know reaching out and, and talking about it and that's one of the misconceptions that you dispel in the book that, People don't want to talk about it, but in fact, they do. You know, when you've lost someone, you you do want to talk about
1: them and share stories. Isn't that a great way to start healing? Yes, and it's one of the things that people struggle with. It's an interesting thing. People are often what I hear from um, clients often is that people, after the initial few weeks, disappear, and they don't ask about the person that's died. And they think they're protecting you from feeling upset. And in fact, what they're doing is protecting themselves from experiencing your upset. Because people, unless they've been through a major loss, don't understand that that person who's grieving is already carrying their loved one. And for the most part, want more than anything to be asked. I had dinner the other night with a friend of mine whose mother died a year ago. She was very close to her. And I said to her, how are you doing living after your mother's been gone this period of time? And she said, thank you so much for asking. And I, I have to remember that because people do want to talk for the most part. And if we can withstand being with their grief, they will just open.
0: Right, they want to talk and, and share stories. I mean, that's something that I try to do Um, when I see a a entry in, uh, you know, for a Facebook page memorial, or, you know, sometimes, uh, different websites will have a memorial page, you know, different funeral homes or that kind of thing. And, and I love to read the stories and I don't know, you probably won't think this is weird, but I remember, um, one of the things I would always love to read is the obituaries, you know, newspaper, doesn't that say, it seems quaint to say, read it in the newspaper, but I miss newspapers. Yeah, You know, I used to love that where I would sit with a cup of coffee and, and read the newspaper. And I would always love to read the obituaries because I, that was about the certain read.
1: age do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I would do, I would like subtract, um, the, you know, the dates just to see the average, you know, people are really living a long time these days. Um, Just as an aside, something I noticed, but I I did love to read those stories, and I love when people would share personal things about their loved ones, Mm -hmm. and you know, and being able to to share that, I think it's really important. And in the book, you also counsel people to be kind to themselves, and I think we try to shake ourselves to get over something rather than sit with it, like like we were just talking about. And what are some ways to start being kinder to ourselves?
1: You know, I think the first thing, um, you know, rather than sort of have this attitude of shake it off or suck it up, um, starting to observe your self-talk. What are the committee of judges who live in your head and what kinds of names do they tend to call you? (laughs) What are your Another thing is to look at what your expectations are of grief. Many of us carry ideas of timelines, stages, and sequences and feel that they're not grieving enough, they're not grieving, they're grieving too much. I had someone say to me the other day in a new new member of my bereavement group, "I don't know if I'm crying enough. I cried a lot one day, but I only cried a couple of minutes yesterday. Is that normal?" I can't tell you how many times I'm asked if if how they're doing their process is right. And there's really as many ways to grieve as there are people who grieve. Another thing is to look at is what is your conditioning? What were you taught as a child about grief? Because those lessons live in you and probably are shaping a lot of how you think about it. So what I would say is observe yourself, talk, start where you are, and welcome yourself with tenderness as you would a hurting child. So if a close friend came up to you and said, I'm feeling so sad about the loss of whatever, my dog or my aunt, you wouldn't say shake it off. You'd, right. you'd say sorrow is a precious part of who you are. Let me listen. So practicing loving kindness is a really important way to start, I think.
0: It's so interesting how a big concern is we want to be normal <laughs> right <laughs> is this normal you know for a lot of a lot of things but so interesting with grief that people would ask
1: that question
0: you know mm-hmm. is this normal
1: and- well i think it reflects in part the impact of elizabeth kubler-ross's work which was about five stages of dying and what happened is those stages got applied to people that were grieving and while some of those stages people may go through, they were never intended to be used in any kind of a linear way at all. And they've been overlaid on the bereavement community in a way that they were never intended. And I think they, they sit heavily uh, as a roadmap. And part of what the, I do in the book is to try to debunk that myth. That's not a measure of how you're grieving.
0: Right, like you would say, okay. Now I'm in the acceptance stage. Now I'm in the depression stage. Like it's a
1: hurdle that well, you have to jump. Here, here's here's one I hear a lot. Yes, it, it is. Or I skip this stage. Or here's one. Here's one. Here's a uh, an experience I hear expressed often. Uh, Claire, I was walking down the. I, I've been doing really well. I'm I'm crying less and less. I was walking down the aisle of the supermarket. And all of a sudden, I saw a can of tuna fish and I just lost it. I couldn't stop crying. I just couldn't stop crying. And I say always, this, you didn't lose it. You got it. You had a moment where the reality of your loss broke through. That grief is like a wave, it rides up and down, it comes and goes. And that's the way our psyche is protected. But also, these sudden temporary upsurges of grief called stug in the literature are intense and they're unexpected and they arrive like a tsunami. And it's just that moment when the whole reality of what you've been through breaks in. And all you can do is to name it, write it out, and invariably the next day you recuperate. But the word closure is not really relevant to losing a loved one because grief is an expression of our love. So that's not going to end. But I think naming this sudden temporary upsurge of grief is really important for people because they tend to think they've gone back in their grief process rather than having a moment as they're moving forward.
0: Right. I'm so glad you brought that up because I I experienced something like that even just recently. And my mother passed in 2007. So that's what, 13 or 14 years, something (laughs) like my math is bad, but it's been a while. And I was um, somewhere and I I smelled a perfume that I remembered her Uh, wearing, mm -hmm. you know, and and I think scents are just so, you know, can be so transformative, taking you back to a place, you know, so powerful And I and I felt that rise up, and you know, I started tearing up, and kind of felt a wave of grief. And I really missed her. I'm like, oh, I really want to talk to you. Um, and and this just happened, <laughs> just recently. So I, I love that you say that and give people that permission to, you know, ride those waves. And and I always hated that term of closure. There is, no I mean, I closure. right. It, it, there's before and after, right? I mean, that's I think, right. You know, it kind of changes you in your DNA that you things will never be the same as, as it
1: was. And they shouldn't be. <laughs> right. You know, um, I, I think of, I, I, I often say to people, people will say, how long is my grief going to last? And it will last forever in some way or another. Um, when when someone first dies, the wallpaper, the rug, the furniture, everything in the room is grief. It's all you see everywhere. And then slowly with the passage of time, other resources come into your life between the loss of that person and your current life. And what's searingly painful moves more into a dull ache. And what happens is the whole room is not grief so much, but eventually you have a gray chair sitting in the room that you visit periodically, but you're not living in it all the time. And I I love that analogy. I I also read recently about it's like breaking a bone. At first, it kills. And then slowly, with the passage of time and physical therapy, and maybe if you need surgery, it goes from hurting a lot to a dull ache on rainy days. And that really spoke to me, that analogy.
0: Right, that dull ache, that feeling. Um, And I think it's interesting, too, with things you know things that we hold on to and uh, I I just had this happen so I'm bringing in my own personal experience because um, it's uh, reading the book has been bringing you know these things up for me which is so interesting um, just recently my sister had asked me for a piece of jewelry that was my mother's from a charm bracelet and she wanted to take this piece this charm and make something else out of it for her mm. nephew for his birthday and and it was so hard for me to mm. Take that, you know, even though it, it and it's been over a decade, like I said, since my mother passed, and no one's wearing that charm bracelet. It's sitting there. She wants to make use of it that I think my mother would would approve of it. But sometimes it's it's hard to let those things go yes. because I feel like that was a personal thing that my mother had, but she's not here. You know, so Sorry. why am I holding on to this? It's crazy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not crazy it's just part of how you're grieving and i think it's important not to label that as crazy it has some attachment to you and someone's asking to reformat it so you know how do you hold that without bringing in a judge to right. say this is crazy <laughs> right it's so easy to do it's so easy to judge ourselves
0: but it isn't really crazy so that's It isn't good to
1: crazy know. at all <laughs> i can i could tell you a number of examples where I've heard these stories are like that, akin to that.
0: And see, again, we go back to am I normal? That's where There you go. <laughs> that is a very deep thing, isn't that, with people? It, because I guess, it, you know, yeah. we're herd animals, right? So we want to fit into the
1: herd. That's, yeah, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's we don't know a herd you want to get into either. <laughs> right. That's so true. Yeah. You know,
0: we but we want to make sure, oh, I'm not I'm not standing out, you know, this this isn't weird or, or crazy. So we have just a, a minute to a short break. We're gonna take them, we'll come back and speak with Claire a little bit more about this. So in this time where we're not able to really be together or, you know, see people, I mean, you have bereavement groups and you counsel people online.
1: Yes, everything's on Zoom.
0: and so that's the best way. If someone wanted to join a group or talk to you, they would just go to your site openingtogrief.com. Yes, and that would and that would be the best way to get in touch. And that's such a great way for community, isn't it, you know to even if it is on Zoom.
1: It's opened up um, bereavement groups to people who can't come. It's been interesting because it's really expanded the number of people we can reach.
0: So actually, making it it easier in a way to reach people where before yes. they, you know, might have had to come up with excuses. Oh, I can't drive. I'm not going to go there. Well, That's now right. you just have to you or know, I'm <laughs> sit in sick front of you. Or whatever. Right. That's Right. Yeah. Now you yeah. just have to sit in front of your computer and do that. That's right. So we'll, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back in just a minute. I'm talking with Claire B. Willis about her book, So Transformative. I've really enjoyed reading this, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace.
1: You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Okay, thanks for coming back after the break. I'm Diane Ray, and I'm talking with Claire B. Willis about her book Opening to Grief Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. And one of the things you bring up in the book that I thought was interesting was talking about feelings of gratitude. <laughs> and when you know when someone's grieving that might be the last thing that we're feeling. How can we work with that with gratitude?
1: Well, this is one of my favorite topics, and I want to say that yes, when you're grieving, it can be really hard to think about gratitude. And I certainly wouldn't um, urge people to think about gratitude at the at the outset of having lost someone or something uh, when the grief is searing. But I think what we have to remember is that our minds are all hardwired to be habituated towards what's negative. And it's even more so when we grieve. Um, It's just the ancient way we were wired for survival. And Rick Hansen's work, which is really good, talks about how important it is to have a gratitude practice. Because having a gratitude practice helps us to build resilience and strength to bear our suffering. And that is one of the most important parts of this. So for instance, when COVID came, one of the things, I mean, as well as all the horrors of the losses, one of the things that I noticed was all the incredibly kind gestures that were happening around me, the spontaneous outreaches for help and kindness. And so putting my attention on that alongside what we were losing was really important. So it's not about being grateful and ignoring what's wrong, but it's about finding gratitude for some of the things that are right. So maybe it's someone who's dropped off a casserole. Maybe it's been a phone call from someone saying, how are you doing? How can I help? But putting our attention there so that we notice what's good alongside what's been difficult, because ultimately it's going to help us carry the difficulty of our grief.
0: And another feeling that comes up that people have a hard time with around a death is guilt. Um, and it kind of ties in a little bit with gratitude because I, I remember, um, well, but when both my mother passed from, uh, colon cancer and my father had Alzheimer's and I mean, after my father died, I remember my sister and I praying that, Mm. that he would pass because mm-hmm. we couldn't stand to see the suffering anymore and there was feelings of being grateful kind of that oh th- you know thank you, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm glad that that's over and then you feel a little bit guilty after that you know well should I should I be happy that they're gone but I think sometimes you know we should be able to s- switch that uh that feeling right where we should be glad in a way that they've been able to be released from that pain and be able to pass.
1: Yes, absolutely. I had the same feeling after 9-11 when my mother died and I thought, thank God she didn't live to see that. Um, You know, I think there's, there's two parts here that guilt is when somehow we've done something at the time that we, we don't feel was quite right, for instance, in taking care of somebody and, the the most important thing is to bring compassion and kindness to your guilt and to just consider what was possible at the time, given the circumstances of your personal history. Um, I hear a lot about regret and how looking back, we can go through these woulda, coulda, shouldas, um, which are one of the quickest ways to obscure what we did that was right. And so it's, it's sort of like gratitude. It's important to redirect our attention towards what we did that was right, as well as what we think in retrospect, we could have done differently.
0: Yes. I think if spending too much time with regret, I mean, I've, I've felt those feelings as well. You know, I regret, you know, oh, why did I move? Why did I move away? You know, I should have been closer. I should have done this. And it's just, and again, going back to what we were talking about in the first segment, you know, kind of the. The array of feelings that you go through in grief—I mean, the guilt. Um, then there is some gratitude that you're happy that their yes. suffering is over, and yes. you know all and of these crazy things.
1: You know, also there's the there's the relief. Besides the suffering being over, there's also, you know, and this is going to sound terrible. I remember when my mother died. I didn't want her to die, but I wanted my life back. And the only way I could get my life back was if she died. So was I wishing her dead? Well, no, I didn't wish her to die, but I wished my life back. And, you know, it's a slippery slope. And I hear this a lot with people who are in taking in caregiving positions, long-term caregiving positions with people with cancer. You know, it's hard to take care of somebody on a day-to-day basis over a long period of time. A lot of loss that happens for that caregiver as oh, well as, as well as for so, the patient
0: absolutely it is so hard, and I have so much respect for people that are in that position and, oh, and so much empathy yes. for what they're going through and there's so many people I think they call it the sandwich generation, you know, where there's people raising families and also taking care of elderly parents and handling all of that as well yes and yes. then. Of course, in the container of this pandemic that we're dealing with, just you know, it just amplifies everything. But yeah, I'm glad we could talk about a little bit about guilt because I'm sure a lot of people deal with that feeling. A lot and, of people, yeah. You know, the book is which is so is going to be such a great um companion for people. And I hope book clubs pick this up and, and talk about this. But you brought up some things to address grief that I hadn't really thought about, but are great ideas you know, art therapy, doing that or writing. And you talk about writing as a refuge. And I remember writing a letter to my father after he passed, you know, just things that I wanted to say to him, but I felt, okay, well, maybe he's, maybe he's understanding this or or hearing it in, you know, whatever way in the afterlife that, (laughs) that they can hear these things, because I think you can still communicate, you know, in that way, if you, if you want to. I mean, and you say writing is can be a real refuge. And you, and you encourage people to do that.
1: Yes. Um, I actually facilitate a, a, um, a therapeutic writing group. You know, uh, on the just on the sort of the research side of this, James Pennybaker has done a lot of research on the therapeutic benefits of writing. And um, basically, if you write three to four times a week for up to six weeks, you can actually improve your immune system, decrease your anxiety and and depression. It's pretty heavily uh, documented. But the research aside, um, writing and using language helps make sense of grief. It forces us to create some coherence around it because we have to describe it, we have to organize it, and we have to structure it in order to um, write. So it takes the complexity of an event and, and settles it so the mind can rest. And I find that people have used writing for a variety of ways. One of the things people use it to is they often write unsent letters to their loved one saying, this is what I wanted you to know about today, or here's um, what I'm thinking about that you've missed, or whatever, or keeping a grief journal. Um, it's 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 a way... To sort of, it's, writing is sort of, it can be an act of devotion, something you turn to if you like it. And if you do find that it's comforting, finding a writing group, because it'll help you find your unencumbered voice, your unencumbered written voice.
0: I thought it was so helpful when I wrote that letter. And, you know, I just said, because my, my father was a very, uh, how how could I describe it? you know he didn't he didn't express emotion <laughs> really, mm-hmm. you know that much in life, but he would do other things that m- made me or led me to believe you know i knew I knew he loved us, you know, in his way, he just wasn't able to really express it, and yeah. I think that was probably really painful for him to have that barrier, you know he wasn't yeah. like the big openly loving guy, but you know he was part of my Indian guides, you know, when I was a little girl and took my sister and I uh-huh. to do that. And I'm sure he didn't, I am probably wasn't into wearing the feathers and all that. <laughs> yeah, but he did things like that to show how he loved us. And when I wrote right. that letter, you know, I had all these great memories of growing up and I was sharing that with him. And it was really
1: very therapeutic. Well, you know, um, so. that's interesting that you say that. There's a book called I Remember by... Uh, Brainerd and Paget. The whole book is nothing but I remember and a sentence. I remember. It's about 200 pages of I remember. And one of the things that I hear a lot in my bereavement group is I never want to, there are so many memories I don't ever want to forget. And I always say to people, you will forget, even though you think you won't. Start writing. Keep your memories, just starting with, I remember and see what comes because by setting aside the time, you will generate memories that you won't be able to keep recalling unless you write them down.
0: Right. That's so great. That's, that's really good advice. And you introduced a new word in this book. You're, you're inventing words here. And I wanted you to (laughs) define this because I think this this is so interesting, it seems to be a direct response to what we're experiencing with this pandemic. And I hope
1: I even say the word right. Solstalja, is that is that right? Well, let me let me just say this is not my word. I made up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wish I could have, but this is a really interesting word. Um, an Australian Australian eco philosopher named Glenn Albrecht actually uses this term solstalja which refers to the pain of no longer finding solace in a place that you previously felt like home. So I came across this word when I was writing a blog about environmental grief. And I was thinking about how cold our language is for climate change. It's so scientific. It doesn't have the soul of loss that is actually occurring around here. The word is actually a combination of the word nostalgia and solace. So the word solostalgia combines those two. And I love how it carries a softness and a tenderness that our English language terms around climate change don't convey. Indigenous people and marginalized communities know about this because their land has been ruined and many of their cultures Decimated, but with climate disruption, many more people—and now people of privilege—are beginning to feel it. Their communities are flooded in California. The wildfires or fires are threatening the very livability of beautiful places, and it's happening all over the world. So that's what that word actually means. You can almost hear it. You can hear the sorrow in the in the syllables, right? Right. solastalgia. Yeah. So
0: so really we're experiencing that by not being able to i mean places that we used to go we can't go you know, so we're we're sad for that loss for the loss of those places well, you know the, the environment included
1: it, it, yes the the loss of places that used to be a solace the loss of wildlife the loss of i mean these sequoias you know the redwoods it's just um When you think about what's being lost, there's just, there's such a grief around the losses in the environment. And we don't have a way of talking about it that I think often reaches the heart. It doesn't touch us until it comes into our life, I think, in the ways it needs to. And certainly this pandemic comes out of climate change. Right.
0: Yes, uh, that's so, so
1: true. And
0: uh, seeing some of the images, you know, of you mentioned the fires here in California, which are, are close to home for me, but I remember feeling just recently over the, the destruction in Australia and all uh, of the animals in the area that was destroyed there was, was heartbreaking and just yes. the helplessness yes, that you feel. Exactly. And the images
1: of those little koala bears.
0: Oh, it's horrible. You oh know, my
1: gosh. So these places that used to be places we would retreat to for restoration aren't going to be there for many people. And certainly, as I said, the indigenous people know about this. They've lived it. Right. That's a real sobering thought
0: to think yeah. about that. But I had never uh, never read that word. I was not I familiar with that. I hadn't either until I was doing this work. <laughs> it's a great word. It is. It's very fitting. It fits to describe exactly exactly what you're saying. And I wanted to talk about some different kinds of loss. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, loss of our our kind of our life as we know it. Um, But I... I just ex- I experienced this too recently. I'm using you as my therapist during this interview. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> In some way. Um, but I had a companion animal. Uh, I had a cat for 14 years and we recently had to put him down. And I've had to, you know, to go through this over the years. But this time was specifically really heightened. I mean, my, my husband and I don't have any children. So we kind of our pet's are our children. And I really grieve the loss of George, my cat, George, like a person. I mean, I was devastated. I'm, I still, it still upsets me. I still see him out of the corner of my eye because it's pretty fresh. This only recently just happened. And I think people feel, you know, first of all, that they shouldn't talk about the loss of an animal because it'll be minimized. And then also going back to the guilt that, you know, wow, I grieved more for this cat or dog or Horse or whatever animal that I did for a family member. Mm-hmm. And you must come across this in your groups
1: too. Well, I do, and I've lived this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I put down my companion dog of 15 years on March 1st, and right at the beginning of the pandemic. And anyway, let me, let me just say this about pets. This is what is often called a disenfranchised grief. It's an invisible grief because it's not a culturally sanctioned grief. There's no rituals for it. And the love that people who have pets hold for those animals is pure and unconditional. That is not the kind of love that most of us have for other human beings because our lives with other human beings are much more complex. They're conflicted and we may love one another, but it's not doesn't have that simple purity of unconditionality. And so I completely get it. And I think for many people, the loss of a pet is far greater than it is for humans they've loved. And I tried to write about that and normalize it in the book. I So as I said, I lost a cockapoo I had for 15 years on March 1st, not knowing that I was gonna be facing into this pandemic, although I still had to put him down. And I got a new puppy two weeks ago. And there was a part of me when this puppy arrived that thought it would fill the gap of my other dog, and it hasn't. And I love this puppy. But it was an interesting mind trick that I had going um, of thinking that that would actually happen. The moment he came in, I realized, oh, it's not Nico. Oh, this is Bodhi, you know? So I I completely get this from a personal point of view and I hear it in my bereavement groups a lot. There are actually pet bereavement groups um in the Boston area for people.
0: Right? There should be. And it's I'm so glad you shared that story because I did the same thing and I got a new kitten uh, right after you, maybe a week or so after, cause we were both so devastated over losing George and maybe part of me thought, Oh, it might be the same, but it's not. <laughs> he's, he's a totally different cat, you know, that's with right. a different energy and, that's and right. everything. And we really, we, we have another, another cat and we didn't want her to be lonely. So that's why we got the, the other one, um, and But yeah, that was so interesting because I'm like, no, he's not. You know, he's not the same. And I know. that other animal that we had for so long will always have a special place in my heart. Like no one can ever replace George. But this other new little guy is kind of worming his way in too. And, and he has brought a lot of joy yeah. um, to it's a, it's help us. It's an
1: interesting us. process, isn't it? Yes, it is. So it's interesting. so interesting.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to bring up something else that um has come up with managing grief in different ways that grief is expressed, and I, you know, we're in the age of social media, and we're posting everything online. Mm. Well, recently, I had um, a colleague, a friend that I had worked with, and she had a stillborn baby, and she was devastated over the loss of this baby. Well, she took pictures of the baby, and she shared them on social media. And when I saw that, I was shocked. I'm thinking. Oh, Oh my, you know, are you are you seeing this? Are you seeing the the pictures of this dead baby? And it was shocking, but I guess it was something that she really wanted to share that you know was something that she felt was beautiful, I guess that she wanted to share. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know how to react to this. I didn't know how to respond to her grief or what to say about the pictures if if anything. Like, what do you do? Put a sad face thumbs up? I mean, you know, I didn't know how to, how to respond. So I really didn't say anything. I mean, I had said, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss and, you know, and that before, but I mean, have you encountered anything like that before in your groups?
1: No, I haven't. And, um, I think that more and more people are like, I have a friend who recently learned on Facebook that someone had died. The personal touch of these losses is getting, uh, um, I don't know, even know what the verb is, but it, social media is being the conveyor of this rather than what I call flesh time or person-to-person time. And COVID has made this worse. But I, I, I completely can appreciate how shocking this would be to see this. And the only way I could think about this is this is her way of really asking for support, of sharing the magnitude of what she's lost. And we live in a culture that doesn't welcome these images. In another culture, this might not have been so shocking, but our culture doesn't welcome this. And she was, I think, in her own way, showing what she lost and asking in her own way for support. and And it's shocking. So how can we be with our shock and say, oh, yeah, this is shocking. And how can I extend a hand? Well, I felt I could have handled it better.
0: Is the do you think that should I have responded? What, did, what did you do? Well, I when I when I heard she lost the baby, you know, I, I responded and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. And and then she was posting pictures of the actual baby, you know, wrap like wrapped up, but you could see the baby's face and everything. And that but you're right, those images we are shocked. We don't see death. Like other cultures, like Hindus, you That's know, right. people, they right. they have the cremations there in Benares and different cities, you know, families are used to being it, around each other and we're not, you know, we're so separated. So first I was a little shocked, but I, looking back, like, I think I could have res- maybe responded differently.
1: You know, I, I'm pretty old fashioned about this. This is where I pick up the phone, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, you know, or I write a note or I do something off the computer so that someone has in hand some expression from me. I, In my bereavement groups, one of the things that's been really interesting was how people talk about not having anything in writing from the person they loved. No handwriting. And everything's gone so digital. And there's an intimacy and in a connection in a written note or a letter or something that you don't get by sending an email or a text or a like on Facebook, you know? Right. So I, I I tend to encourage people to handwrite something to people because they can hold it. It doesn't disappear. It's not at the effect of Facebook eliminating it or amplifying it or bringing it back in five years and saying, remember this day, you know, which I'm not a big Facebook person, but I know that, people who have died get resurrected on Facebook frequently.
0: Right. In the memories or something will pop up and that that could be
1: jarring. I don't know that there's any right or wrong way to respond to something like this because a lot of it also has to do with the quality of relationship you had with the person.
0: That's true. I mean, we were, we were friends, but it wasn't like a best, best friend or, you know, someone I grew up with, but I love your idea and, and suggestion about a handwritten note or a card. Or a sympathy card. I'm still a card person. Maybe maybe yeah. I'm old school in that way. Yeah. Me too. And I'm, I still send Christmas cards. And <laughs> <Me too. laughs> every year, I see the dwindling list of people, and you know, yeah. I don't get I don't get them back, but that's <laughs> <I> okay. Like, <really, laughs> I don't I I keep, send, <laughs> I think I send them though. Right. Like I keep sending them, and I I hope that they're welcome, and people see it. Maybe for a few minutes, they'll think of me, and eventually, they'll throw it out. But that's okay. Um, but yeah, I think having that personal touch. But maybe you'll see more of this, um, you know, I'm moving forward that. in the future, you know, I, of people expressing yeah. themselves in that way. And you're right also about Facebook where I have found, you know, I'll be flipping through my feed and I've been jarred to find out that someone uh, passed away through oh, a Facebook post. That's tough. Yeah. But more and more, I guess we're going to have to get used to these new ways of of being with it and and dealing with it. And, you know, in your in your work as... A, a lay buddhist person or a buddhist chaplain you know and i love so many things about the buddhist philosophy and you know i've been working for a long time myself to be more comfortable with where i am and with what's happening right now and my husband makes fun makes fun of me he says i always worry about where we're going to park i have parking yes. syndrome <laughs> where are we going to park we haven't even gotten there yet what are you worried about it well i'm worried about what's oh, going to happen oh,
1: oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, I thought you meant where you were gonna park your mind and heart. No, you're talking not, about literal. Yeah, literally. You know, but also it's
0: kind of a, a it's kind of a metaphor, you know. Um where where can you park park
1: your you know, heart? It, it, where you can park your heart. That's so especially in the face of such uncertainty. And I think learning if COVID's done nothing else, it's shown us <clears throat> how fleeting life can be. How the veil between life and death is very thin. We're, we're sort of trained to be doers. We're always looking at what's next. We're looking backwards or looking forwards. And we often miss what's right in front of us. We want this. We don't want that. And our preferences can so often create our suffering. So I think being here in this moment with this breath, these sounds, these trees, this touch, it means allowing our grief for what it's been as life will not return the way it was. And it's simple but not easy. Just trying to enhance our capacity to be in the moment. Um, it's not easy, but I think certainty has always been a comfortable illusion that we've all suffered at the effect of.
0: Uh, Claire, it's been so great to talk with you. I've really enjoyed our time together. And I hope people will pick up this book. I think it's such a great tool to have, a great gift to give people, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. And find Claire online at openingtogrief.com. And thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation a lot. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Geisman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope.